Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Thank you all for coming tonight um, to the Center for the Study of World Religions. If you've been here many times before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, uh, it's nice to have you with us tonight. Um, the style of these events is very informal. So if while the presentations are going on, you feel hungry and thirsty and want something more, just make yourself unobtrusively over to the table and grab something else. So it's meant to be a, a formal, informal setting. And, and some people have to go and come occasionally. So don't worry about that. Uh, my name is Frank Clooney. I'm the director of the center and happy to host this series. It's one of the more most uh, pleasant and satisfying uh, series that the center has on new faculty books. And I think uh, our intuition over the years has always been that so much of our time goes into writing these books, researching them, writing them, testing them out, revising them, when we're all too busy and then running off to hide on the weekend or hide in the summer to do our work. And then too often in the past, it's been very much, oh, you have a new book out, lovely cover. And then you don't really know uh, who's gone beyond that. So a great opportunity, I think, has arisen to have these events where we have the author talk about his or her book and then have respondents who talk about the book from various angles. They're not required to do book reports, but rather simply to open up the book and to discuss some interesting points in it. And then, because you are all here because you're interested, we open it up for further discussion. So I think it's a fairly uh, casual approach and really meant to maximize our thinking about the book. Uh, the way we'll proceed, oh, I should mention before, um, beginning that this is the first of five anticipated book events this year. So on April, uh, November 28th, uh, Amy Hollywood's book, Acute Melancholia and Other Essays, will be the subject of discussion. That's the Monday after Thanksgiving. And then in the spring, we don't have the dates yet, uh, books by Usman Khan, Elizabeth Schussler-Fiorenza, and Catherine Brakis. So those events will be announced as the time goes on. So our procedure tonight is, I will say a brief word in, in reference to Charles Stang, who needs no introduction. Uh, he will speak about the book, how he came to write it, uh, any ups or downs along the way as he chooses to open it up for us. Then I'll introduce our two um, discussants who have been good enough to come here tonight for this purpose. Then they will speak about the book from their two angles. Uh, if Charlie would like to respond to them, we'll invite him to um, speak uh, more reflections on their reflections. And then the last part, all three chairs will be in the front here, and then we'll have just a conversation with everybody, usually finishing just about 7 o'clock, sometimes a few minutes earlier or later, depending on the need. So that's the way we'll proceed tonight. So Charles Stang, a uh, Harvard graduate, college graduate, MDiv from the University of Chicago, and a PhD from Harvard Divinity School in 2008, where he also joined the faculty. Uh, his research and teaching, as you all know, are in the history and theology of Christianity in late antiquity, especially Eastern varieties of Christianity. Uh, more particularly, he's also interested in development of asceticism, monasticism, and mysticism in Eastern Christianity. He's also further interested in Eastern Syrian tradition along the Silk Road, religions of the late antique Mediterranean, including Manichaeism, and modern continental philosophy and theology, particularly as these intersect with the study of religion. His first book, which won several prizes and was very well received, Apophasis and Pseudonymity in Dionysius the Areopagite, No Longer I, came out in 2012. He's also the editor 
2002, The Waking Dream of T.E. Lawrence, Essays on His Life, Literature, and Legacy. With Sarah Coakley, he edited Rethinking Dionysus the Areopagite in 2009. And with Zach Giuliano, The Open Body, Essays in Anglican Ecclesiology, 2012. His new projects, which go beyond this book, include a book on the problem of evil in Christianity and Neoplatonism, um, to be published by Harvard University Press, and a new edition and translation of Vigrius of Pontus' uh, Gnostic Trilogy to be published by Oxford University Press. So it looks like many more book events are on the way for Charlie. And this is the book that we'll be discussing tonight with this lovely cover. I'll pass it around in a minute, our divine double. I'll pass it around. You can take a look at it. And I thought the only way to um, finish off my remarks would be just to be read a little bit of the introduction, the, the flap in the cover here. Uh, what if you were to discover that you were not entirely you, but rather one half of a whole, that you had, in other words, a divine double? In the second and third century CE, this idea gripped the religious imagination of the Eastern Mediterranean, providing a distinctive understanding of the self that has survived in various forms throughout these centuries down to the present. Our divine double traces the rise of this ancient idea that each person has a divine counterpart, a twin, alter ego, and the eventual eclipse of this idea with the rise of Christian conciliar orthodoxy. So a tantalizing beginning for our discussion tonight. Let us welcome Charles Stang. Thank you, Frank. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, thank you, Ben and Greg, for coming to uh, offer your remarks. This book already owes so much to both Ben and Greg. Um, and insofar as I regard it as, in many ways, an unfinished project, uh, it will owe even more to you after this evening. Um, so Frank spoke about this lovely cover, uh, which I can't help but uh, draw attention to, because if any of you are Facebook friends with me, you will know that one of uh, the longest threads ever on my Facebook feed was a cantankerous debate about different versions of this cover um, in which people from my distant past and present all weighed in. So <laughs> old elementary school friends um, and colleagues. So I, I, I warn you about putting that out on, uh, on, on Facebook. Don't solicit too much advice uh, on the cover. It is what it is. Uh, it's a mirrored flower. I've kind of come to like it in its sepia. Um, so Frank has asked me not to summarize the book, but to speak instead about how I came to write it and what challenges I faced in it. Um, and I had thought that uh, for those of you, you sad souls who haven't had a chance to read it, that I might uh, say a little bit about what the book is about. But in fact, Frank did exactly what I was going to do, which was simply read from the dusk jacket cover. So I won't. That's okay. You stole my thunder. Um, I won't repeat myself. Um, I stand by that description in the, from the dust jacket, more or less. I might add now, by way of warning to readers, that the book changes altitude rather often and rather dramatically. Sometimes it hovers just over the weeds, or indeed descends right into the weeds, um, wrestling with the minutiae of these ancient texts in their original languages. And sometimes it indulges in lofty philosophical and theological speculation across texts and traditions. There is a certain nerdy delight and safe harbor 
in the former, just as there is a certain excitement and ambition in the latter. But this anticipates what I'll shortly say about the challenges I faced in writing the book and the challenges I still face when reading it. So here's the story about how I came to write this book. It's not terrifically exciting. There was no mountaintop uh, revelation, sadly. Um, it arose out of my teaching. Um, not at HDS, curiously, not at first at least, but actually in adult education, uh, in a seminar I offered for a group of elementary, middle, and high school teachers on the topic of lost gospels. Now, I'm pretty sure that this group of teachers would rather have had Karen King offer that seminar, uh, but alas, they had me. I was still a doctoral student, and I was teaching the Gospel of Thomas, which is always a crowd pleaser. And the group was trying to make sense of that Gospel's cryptic meditations on the one and the two, and why a Gospel attributed to Jesus' twin might include such cryptic meditations. That fact seemed to make some sense to me. After all, what more than a pair of twins raises the acute and at times anxious question of the relationship between the one and the two, self and other, intimacy and alterity. So I was bit by something in that seminar. And over the years, a question I couldn't even formulate, but only feel, grew inside me. And so I did what all scholars do. I made a file. And for years, I dumped anything I could into this file. New texts, stray quotes, ancient and modern, random musings of my own. But the center of this swirling world of words seemed always just out of reach, even out of sight. When time came for my first research leave, I decided to throw myself into that file and to pitch it as a project centered on the figure of the divine double. I was encouraged when I received two fellowships to pursue that project, one an NEH fellowship in Jerusalem and another from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I don't mention those to brag, although I'm not above that. Um, I mention them because they served as external validations of what was then very much a hunch. But even with these external validations, I still felt that with every articulation of the scope and purpose of the project, something profound was eluding me. Well, a tenure clock doesn't stop because you feel that something is eluding you. <laughs> you have to write, and I did during that year in Jerusalem and for the two years after that. I enjoyed the writing of this book. I enjoy writing. I loved writing the chapter on Plato. I revised the chapter on the Gospel of Thomas what felt like a thousand times. And the chapter on Plotinus nearly killed me. <laughs> I could go on, but suffice to say that I finished all the chapters of this book and I asked myself, what is this book what does it do? And my first answer to that question was the introduction. At a minimum, this book is a recovery project, by which I mean that it unearths a minority report from antiquity, a lost or perhaps even suppressed chapter in the history of religions, 
it presents a peculiar ancient understanding of the self as a unity and duality. That is, as one and yet two, and identity that includes an inalienable difference. This minority report on the nature of the self is also a mystical anthropology, by which I mean that it offers a model of the self not as a static description, but as an urgent project. The self is an, enter is an enterprise of becoming divine, of an encounter with and an increasing conformity to one's divine double. Now, almost a year after I had submitted the full manuscript to the publisher and my colleagues, some of whom are here, for tenure review, I decided to write a second conclusion. Or to be more precise, I realized that my first conclusion wasn't one. And just it was actually just another chapter. And so the book needed a proper conclusion. I've never been good at writing conclusions. But this was an opportunity to take stock of the whole book, once again, now with some distance and with tenure secure. This was an opportunity to acknowledge the ways in which I found the book, I found that the book fell short. It's not that I disagreed with anything in the introduction. Rather, it was an ache for what I did not or perhaps could not say in the introduction. It was a confrontation with the unsaid. And so I tried to say the unsaid. Here's what I said. <laughs> the first thing I said was something someone else had already said. That's another way of saying that I found a good quote. One from Ludwig Feuerbach, the 19th century German philosopher, who seemed to put in words what I could not. He writes, what am I? Where have I come from? And to what end? And this feeling that I am nothing without a not I, which is at the same time my own being, is the religious feeling. But what part of me is I, and what part not I? This seemed to capture something I wanted to say, something like, the tradition of the divine double is important because the essence of religion lies on the edge of that first-person experience of the I and the not I, and that this essence was reflected in a long-standing philosophical tradition that I know best in Platonism of exploring how anything emerged from the transcendental isolation of the one, anything other than the one, that is. It's not fashionable to speak about essences of religion. Um, and so I don't know if that makes me retrograde or a hipster. Um, I actually think I do know which it makes me. Um, and I suspect that you know which it makes me. Um, so if you wisely prefer not to speak of something like essence, think instead of this quote from Auden, which I discovered at the same time. We are lived by powers we pretend to understand. We are lived by powers we pretend to understand. At the very least, then, the tradition of the divine, noble, the divine double is a notable chapter in our efforts to pretend to understand these powers. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie, for getting us started. So we have two uh, gracious respondents. We think they're gracious. We uh, hope they are. 
Uh, ben Dunning uh, first has come to us from Fordham University. Ben, of course, is no stranger to Harvard and Harvard Divinity School. He earned his PhD in the study of religion here with a concentration in New Testament and early Christianity in 2005. For a while, he served as director of undergraduate studies for the comparative study of religion here at Harvard and then joined the Fordham faculty in 2006. Uh, ben teaches primarily in the areas of Christianity and antiquity, critical theory and gender and sexuality studies. He is an affiliated member at Fordham of Fordham's interdisciplinary programs in both comparative literature and women's studies. He's also currently a member of the board of directors for Fordham University Press and an associate editor for the Journal of Early Christian Studies. Among his many publications are uh, two books I'll mention. Uh, 2011 from University of Pennsylvania Press, Specters of Paul, Sexual Difference in Early Christian Thought. Divinizations, reading, uh, rereading late uh, ancient religion. I may have garbled that, sorry. I think there are two books there and I've made them into one. So Specters it's of Paul. Series, it's the series in the book. Okay, so I'll leave it at that. Anyway, there, there's a wonderful book there. And then in 2014, uh, Christ Without Adam, uh, subjectivity and sexual difference in the <coughs> philosophers, <coughs> Paul. Uh, and that's in another series as well. Now, Greg Shaw um, comes to us closer than Fordham from Stonehill College, not far away. Welcome to the campus here. Uh, Greg is a graduate of Arizona State University uh, out in uh, Fine Arts College. He earned an MA in 1980 and a PhD in 1987 in the Religious Studies program at the University of California in Santa Barbara. He has, since 1987, been a member of the faculty at Stonehill College in the Religious Studies Department, but as his website says, also working with the entire Stonehill community. So it's a wonderful campus if you've ever been there, and uh, Greg is a very important part of it. His research interests include religions of late antiquity, especially Neoplatonism, history of divinization with an emphasis on dreams, contemporary religious movements that draw from hermetic and platonic sources, Jungian psychology, and UFO phenomena. He has published in Neoplatonism, Religions of Late Antiquity. Uh, one of his books, uh, 1995, Theurgy and the Soul, the Neoplatonism of the Amblicus. And more recently, 2013, he has co-edited a book, Practicing Gnosis, Ritual, Magic, Theurgy, and Liturgy in Nag Hammadi, Manichaean and Other Ancient Literatures. So I believe the process is that Ben will go first and then Greg will go second. So welcome to you both. Um, gosh, uh, it's always such a pleasure to be back here at Harvard uh, among old friends and colleagues and my teachers. Um, so thanks so much to Frank and to the CSWR for having me. Um, Charlie has been talking about this book with me for many years. And while I was always intrigued, I can't say that I exactly got it. Um, as a fellow historian of early Christianity, I was certainly aware of the tradition designating the Apostle Thomas as some sort of twin, perhaps even Jesus's twin in some sense. Uh, but it had never really occurred to me that you could do much with that. Um, uh, I really thought of uh, the designation Thomas Didymus, or etymologically, as Charlie notes, twin twin, 
as nothing more than a passing reference, uh, intriguing but opaque, and basically a dead end for historical or theological inquiry. Um, so, you know, blood from a stone, more or less. Uh, and while I was also aware of some parallel speculations about divine doubles in late ancient traditions on which I work actively, such as Valentinianism, and ones on which I don't work, such as Manichaeism and Neoplatonism, it certainly had never occurred to me that an there might be an entire theology of twinning operative not only in the Thomas literature, but throughout numerous late ancient traditions of thought uh, that went way beyond the occasional reference to a twin, a shadowy companion, or a possibly divine counterpart, and that indeed was highly developed, philosophically astute, and deeply engaged with conundrums around what it means to be a human self going back at least as far as Plato. Uh, so when I'd see Charlie at conferences and he'd tell me about the book he was writing, I won't say I was skeptical. Um, and there mainly just because I, I've known him a long time, I have the greatest intellectual respect for him, and I trusted that he wasn't writing a book about a phenomenon that would prove ultimately at best impossible to <laughs> access uh, or at worst just kind of not there. Um, but when thinking about the primary sources he was working on that I knew best, parts of the Platonic corpus, the New Testament, the Gospel of Thomas, Tatian, and the Valentinian literature, I, I really had no idea what this book was actually going to say um, beyond just, I knew you would cover the references, but, but I, I didn't know. Um, and so I guess what I'm suggesting, or more precisely agreeing with Charlie about, is that the tradition that our divine double explores has historically been a submerged one, and in the case of some corners of Christianity, an actively suppressed one, uh, what Charlie aptly just a moment ago referred to as a minority report in theological anthropology and soteriology. So much so that for me, prior to reading the book, it was one that I had effectively missed, even in ancient literature that I knew well. So needless to say, I was quite excited when I finally got my hands on this book to see, first of all, that there seemed to be quite a lot to say, uh, 300 pages, no less, um, and of course, to read it for myself. Uh, for those in the audience who haven't read it, um, we've heard from the dust jacket already. Um, I'll just give you another quote that, that I quite like that kind of sums up what the book's about. Uh, so quoting Charlie, through an array of ancient sources, Christian and Manichaean, philosophical and religious, surviving often in fragments and in several languages runs this single thread. The notion that each individual has a divine twin, counterpart, or alter ego whom she or he may meet. This encounter is imagined and narrated very differently in the various sources, but it very often solicits a response, not, not unlike Narcissus's, he's me. This encounter and proclamation mark the beginning of self-knowledge, not the autoerotic self-knowledge that, according to Ovid, killed Narcissus, not even the knowledge of the self one thought one was, but the knowledge of a new and more divine self for which these ancient, struggles, or ancient sources struggle to give an adequate name and description. So let me just start by saying I, think, I really think this book is brilliant. Um, both in its ability to tease out a submerged but undeniably persistent thread of anthropological speculation on the self as doubled, or in Charlie's words, as an irreducible unity in duality in the religious and philosophical traditions of late antiquity, 
and also in how it illuminates that thread in ways that deftly lead the reader through multiple centuries, the far-flung reaches of the ancient Mediterranean world, and some really dense philosophical terrain with not only formidable erudition, but also clarity, judiciousness, and insight. To quote and heartily agree with my friend Andrew Jacobs from the back cover, the book is a triumph. Stang has uncovered an unacknowledged but vital strain of thinking about God and the cosmos that generated centuries of productive thinking about the I and the other. So in a spirit of deep appreciation for the contribution that this book is, I want to spend the rest of my time drawing out some connections and posing some questions uh, to Charlie that emerged for me as I was reading. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is method. And um, I'm just going to talk. I mean, I have notes. And hopefully, I'll wind my way around to an actual question here. Um, so in my own graduate training here at Harvard, and this was a particular moment at Harvard, so I don't want to make it sound too um, representative necessarily. Um, of course, Charlie, you'll remember this because you were there as well. Um, I was taught, uh, at least initially, to be pretty skeptical, skeptical of traditional history of religion's approaches. Um, that may well have been the primary theme of my Religion 2001 introductory doctoral seminar, in fact. Um, now, of course, this has been and continues to be a debated issue. But just to bring up one relevant critique that's directed towards uh, some of the literature analyzed in our Divine Double, uh, Harvard's own Karen King. Where did Karen go? Hi, Karen. Um, Harvard's own Karen King in What is Gnosticism has unpacked the ways in which 20th century history of religion scholarship on Gnosticism generally fell into either a typological structural mode which tended towards essentialist or broadly trans-historical conclusions across broad swaths of time and culture, or a kind of chronological historical mode, which tended to posit direct influence and developmental change, often to underwrite narratives of either religious decline or teleological progress. Now, to be clear, I don't see Charlie doing either of those things in this book. Um, but I do sense, and, and Charlie, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, some desire to, to not throw out the history of religion's baby with the bathwater, um, as it were, perhaps to rehabilitate aspects of a classic history of religion's approach when approaching this literature, albeit in a more careful and possibly somewhat intellectually chastened form in comparison to, say, the grand narratives of redeemed redeemers uh, from an earlier period of scholarship. So I guess one question I have for Charlie is, how would you articulate the relationship of this project to history of religion's approaches? I noticed throughout that you're extremely careful, sometimes bordering on circumspect, about questions of direct influence. I really appreciate that carefulness. Uh, for example, as to whether the Gospel of Thomas influenced Manichaeism or whether there's a direct influence of the divine double tradition on Antiochene Christological dualism. Um, but in the case of the latter, you explicitly say in the footnote that while you're not at all certain you can make the connection, it's an intriguing lead and you want to pursue it. So I'm wondering what might that pursuit look like and what kind of evidence would you be looking for to substantiate the historical connection? Uh, another way to put this might be, is the mode of historiography that you've pursued in the book 
a template for a kind of history of religions 2.0 or 3.0 or wherever we are these days? Um, or even do you think we might be able to go further? And are there places in the book where you wanted to go further and held back? And if so, why? And, uh, and how do you think about that particular form of intellectual restraint? A related question. I am right there with you on so much of, uh, of what you have to say about the practice of reading in this book, and especially the notion of philosophical reading. Um, I liked and found useful the comparisons between ancient Alexandrian critics clarifying Homer with Homer, 20th century new criticism, and your own experiences learning to read difficult philosophical texts as an undergraduate with Stanley Cavell. And I loved your concluding articulation of how we might stage a conversation between ideas and texts across time in a way that is productive while avoiding the worst problems and excesses of anachronism. And I'm actually going to read a little bit of that because I think it's really helpful. Quote, so this is Charlie. In other words, I regard the tradition of the divine double as a centuries-long exploration of a fundamental problem, that is, the problem of the I and the not I, or the one and the not one. Philosophers are sometimes want to reduce philosophy to a series of problems. I usually resist this characterization since we often think that problems are in need of solutions, as we think questions are in need of answers. But if we can instead inhabit the idea that problems and questions are to be lived with uh, rather than solved or answered, then I think we can safely identify or rather differentiate the I and the not I, the one and the not one, as one of the perennial problems with which philosophy, and perhaps more so, religion wrestles. So I think that's great. And I think I'm correct when I say that this is one of the things you mean by philosophical reading when you talk about it earlier in the book. My question is the following. On the one hand, earlier in the book, you lean pretty heavily, if tentatively, on a kind of philosophy versus history distinction. And it's, I think, in favor of philosophy, you say, perhaps I'm simply rehearsing the difference between how philosophers and historians read. On the other hand, an enormous part of this book's achievement is as a work of historical analysis. Um, thus, I'd love to hear you reflect further on your understanding of the relationship between a history of religions approach in whatever form you might see it as viable and the project of philosophical reading. Um, how these might work together, to what end, and with what specific payoffs in view. Um, okay, I'm doing all right on time. So I have two more questions. Second, and much more briefly, um, your reading of Alcibiades one highlights the problem of self-knowledge, building off the Delphic imperative to know thyself. And your reading does a really lovely job um, of uh, illuminating a mode of self-knowledge irreducibly rooted in doubleness, one that proceeds by way of mirroring, um, in which, quoting from the book, we each come to see in the soul of the other, as if in a mirror, a reflection of our own souls, our own vertical doubles, and we each increasingly become what we see. This mutual, mutual deification eventually dissolves the differences between the two horizontal doubles, Lover and beloved each become divine, and so their roles can be exchanged but not replaced. But of course, Alcibiades I is also a dialogue in which Socrates reflects at length uh, on what it means not only to know the self, but also to take care of the self. Uh, 
In the hermeneutics of the subject and elsewhere, Foucault has famously identified here uh, what he calls the great paradox of Platonism or a kind of platonic double game whereby the care of the self finds its ultimate realization in knowing oneself, in knowing the divine, knowing the divine in oneself. But as a result, this self-knowledge is constantly <laughs> in danger of reabsorbing spirituality, of, of uh, reabsorbing the care of the self in the movement of knowledge alone and dissolving into a kind of pure rationality, which, of course, Foucault, in this context anyway, sees as a problem. Um, so my question is, in your exploration of the divine double, has there emerged any sense of what care of the self might mean, specifically in this context of the self as doubled? What might this look like? At the end of the Plato chapter, you suggest that reading itself might serve as a spiritual practice in this context. In your earlier work, and again at the end of the book, uh, you make a similar case for writing. So are reading and writing then the primary practices for care of the self as unity and duality? Are there others? Do you see any role for theurgy here? Sacramental practice, whether Valentinian, Orthodox, or otherwise. All of these are issues that the book touches on at various points, but I'm wondering if you have thoughts on any of them in relation specifically to what it might mean to care for a self that is irreducibly doubled. Third, and I'll end with this, um, I want to talk about sexual difference, which is something I've written quite a lot about, um, as you heard from the titles of those books. Um, and in the interest of time, uh, I'm just going to stick to the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, and I want to be clear um, that I'm raising, this is not a critique, I am raising a question for further inquiry that would never have even occurred to me in quite this way prior to reading your books. So um, it's really exciting for me, actually. Um, okay, so to summarize all too briefly the course that the book charts through the Gospel of Thomas, uh, Charlie isolates eight Coptic sayings that can be considered direct and explicit meditations on the one and the two, um, in which we see both, quote, a clear endorsement of unity, of our becoming one, and a clear understanding that unity is forged from duality, that duality does not disappear in the unity, that the one preserves the two. Um, now, this is fraught scholarly terrain, and, and Charlie takes us through it really well. A number of scholars have interpreted this thematic in terms of Genesis 1 to 2 and the myth of primal androgyny, wherein duality is equated with a kind of fall into sexual difference, and the ultimate goal of oneness is associated with Adam returning to an androgynous state. Charlie's analysis points to how April DeConnick and other scholars have used this backdrop to argue for an encratic reading of Thomas, uh, basically holding up the rejection of sex and marriage and celibacy as the key to understanding the gospel, um, even though the text never says anything like this explicitly. Uh, one key piece of evidence here is Logion 22, which talks about, I don't think I have time to read the whole thing, but it talks about making the male and the female one and the same. Um, and as Ch Charlie rightly points out, it also talks about a whole bunch of other things. Um, and the encratic reading tends to focus solely on the mention of male and female and not look at any of these other, what he calls cryptic conditions, and, and they are cryptic. Um, rather, the scholars that he's critiquing 
quote, take this injunction rather literally to mean that the Gospel of Thomas would have its readers renounce their gender differentiation and live celibate lives, anticipating their androgy uh, androgynous reentry into the kingdom. But if the reader is to take this literally, how is he or she to take the other injunctions, which are things like, well, they're very opaque, you know, replacing an eye with an eye and a foot with a foot and some other stuff. Um, whereas, quoting Charlie, if we take the injunction about making the male and female one and the same in a broader context, it seems that entry into the kingdom is much more about realizing the coincidences of opposites or perhaps the failure of these contraries to obtain as real than it is about a life of celibacy. Okay, so here I find the critique of DeConnick's position to be compelling. And I think Charlie is absolutely right to question the kind of selective literal reading that undergirds it. That said, I wonder if sexual difference might nonetheless still pose a substantial philosophical problem in the terms that you're interested in in the book and within the terms of the gospel's own anthropology. Um, one that needs to be engaged within Thomas's parameters of, quote, tense unity and duality, humming with possibility, even as we would need to avoid a kind of overly wooden reading that just jumps to social reconstruction and, and celibacy and all of that. Um, as the infamous Logion 114 makes clear, the problem of sexual difference is not an untroubled one in Thomas's anthropology. Thus, Simon Peter's claim, which the text may or may not endorse, that women are not worthy of life, and Jesus' response that he will make Mary male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males, for every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. These are famous, there's a famous verse, you know, they're fighting words. There's been a lot of uh, scholarly ink spilled on them unsurprisingly. But Charlie's fresh and insightful take on the gospel as a whole, that is as a theology not of encretism but of twinning, leaves me wondering how we might reread the problem of sexual difference in relation to the divine double. Um, to quote the book again, for Thomas, it is not so much that we each have an individual divine double. On the contrary, our primordial image is uniform. It is Jesus, the Son, whom Paul in Colossians 1.15 described as the image of the invisible God. To see that image, to become Jesus' twin, is to become children of light, end quote. But of course, Colossians 1 also refers to Jesus as both the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead, thereby setting up a parallel that at least can be read as a subtle allusion to a Pauline typological framework developed more fully elsewhere, that is, Jesus as the new Adam, the paradigmatic human being. And as I've argued at length in my own work, this Pauline typology was one place where early Christians in this period engaged sexual difference as a stubborn theological and philosophical problem, an irritant in an anthropological system that otherwise aspired to totality and complete coherence. Bodily difference troubled the Christian typological dream that, to quote Jacques Derrida, perf perfect representation should represent perfectly. Now, what's going on in the Gospel of Thomas isn't the same as what I've just described, and certainly there isn't any kind of developed Adam-Christ typology, though Charlie's own analysis has, left, has led me to wonder if echoes of one might not on some level be in play. But be that as it may, Charlie's reading convinces me that in Thomas, quote, the light within the man of light is Jesus, the transcendent comprehending source of all. 
when one finds this light, one realizes that one is not entirely oneself, not entirely one, but has another, namely Jesus, already inside. Given this then, I'm left wondering, and Charlie, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, how we might understand the distinctives of bodily difference and the philosophical problems generated thereby interacting in a philosophical register with the problem of the one and the two in Thomas and indeed throughout the tradition of the divine double. I'll stop there. Thanks. Great, thanks. Okay, uh, in case you're wondering how long you're gonna be sitting here, I've timed this, it's 18 minutes long. <laughs> so I think that's pretty uh, fundamental kind of stuff for where we are. In the last few decades, we've witnessed a remarkable increase in learned monographs on ancient re uh, philosophy and religion. We know more about their social contexts, and we have also seen a significant increase in translations and analyses of texts. In some, we now possess a great deal more information about ancient religious traditions. And for most scholars, especially for doctoral students looking for a thesis, the ground has been combed over so thoroughly that we can <laughs> scarcely hope to find some unexamined corner and bring it to light. Barring that, we might increase the lens of magnification on some already examined historical event or philosophical text and provide a more finely grained analysis. Yet despite the fact that we have more and more information, we seem to understand less and less of what motivated the spiritual thinkers of the ancient world. Apart from our anxiety for finding a job or getting tenure, there's little to motivate research and even less for others to read it. Information becomes meaningless without a vision. Without a persuasive narrative, without a breath to give it life, the increase of information, however accurate and scholarly, only suffocates us. That is why there is much to celebrate in Charles Stang's remarkable new book, Our Divine Double. Stang gives us far more than information. He has given us an entirely new lens through which we can explore and vicariously experience ancient Mediterranean religious traditions. Through the theme of the divine double, as Stang so ably presents it, we discover an essential spiritual trajectory that, has, that was always present in our sources, but that somehow we had missed. This remarkable book breathes life into our scholarship and provides a new understanding of traditions about which we thought there was nothing new to learn. It's no exaggeration to say that through the lens of the divine double, Stang reveals a landscape that had been completely hidden. This eloquently written and remarkably accessible book invites us into the author's discovery of the spiritual current that underlies Platonism, Neoplatonism, early Christianity, and Manichaeism. To read Our Divine Double is to fall under the spell that enthralled the author, who tells us that, quote, the task of this book is to retrieve this tradition of the divine double from the obscurity into which it has fallen. Indeed, because of the politics of Christian orthodoxy, the phenomenon of the divine double, although central to the early Christian tradition, was repressed and eventually forgotten. Part of what makes this book compelling reading is the prescriptive edge 
to Stang's explorations. We feel he has something at stake, and his passion for retrieving the divine element in our human condition is infectious. <laughs> Not only does this book invite us into the originating impulse of Christianity and other ancient traditions, it also allows us to recognize that the divine double continues to live among us, even among scholars. Shocking as that may be to hear. It allows us to reflect in new ways on those momentary intuitions, dreams, or reveries which belong to a language that has been forgotten in contemporary culture. Stang has discovered the syntax of this language and has given us a voice that allows us to reflect on such moments and find a place for them in Western traditions. So what is the essential element of ancient religions that Stang calls our divine double? Put plainly, it is the revelatory experience of discovering that myself is not all that I am, that there is indeed a divine self with which I am also identified, and with which, and which has been described variously as a daimonion, a twin, a companion, or as part of the soul that never descends into our world. Perhaps the most dramatic encounter with the divine double is exemplified in Mani, the acclaimed third century prophet of light. According to a 10th century source cited by Stang, and I quote, even when young, Mani spoke with words of wisdom. And then when he was 12, there came to him a revelation. According to his statement, it was from the king of the gardens of light. And from what he said, it was God exalted. The angel bringing the revelation was called the twin, a Nabataean word meaning companion. When he completed his 24th year, the twin came to him saying, the time is fulfilled for thee to come forth and to give the summons to thy cause. So began Mani's career as a prophet around whom a thriving religion, a religious tradition formed. Or consider another kind of divine double, the Platonic daimonion, of whom Socrates says at his trial, something divine or spiritual daimonion comes to me this began when I was a child. It's a voice, and whenever it speaks, it turns me away from something I am about to do. But it never encourages me to do anything. Stang characterizes Socrates' divine double as a guiding daimon that uses negative stimuli to steer him to the good. Centuries later, in the Platonic tradition, we have the remarkable confession of Plotinus, the third century Alexandrian philosopher responsible for the spiritual movement known as Neoplatonism. Describing his own divine double, Plotinus wrote, and I quote, many times, I've awakened to myself away from the body, believing myself then to be part of the higher realm, one with the divine, rooted in it, above all intelligible beings. But then going down from this position in the divine, from noose down to discursive reasoning, I'm puzzled how I could even now descend. I'm puzzled how my soul has come to be in the body. One might reasonably argue that all of Neoplatonism, indeed all the diverse traditions represented in what Stang calls our divine double, are attempts to work out this puzzle of Plotinus. How is it that one can be both embodied and mortal and disembodied? a dweller of the higher realm, a god. 
Among the thinkers in this tradition, there seems to be a recognition that our embodied self is, as Plotinus put it, inferior to one's divine self, and that our conventional identity is a kind of false consciousness. So then, do the traditions of the divine double embrace a dualism that negate the reality of our embodied selves as false? Here, Stang provides helpful guidance. Rather than overcoming this division, he writes, the self must first be initiated into its constitutive division, the difference between the I and its double. The self is not one half of the pair, either the I or its double, but is rather the pair itself, somehow preserving that constitutive difference or division in a new self, a new I. Drawing from the work of Henry Corbin, Stang characterizes this divided identity as a unus ambo, a bi-unity made up of one's endowed self along with one's divinely achieved self. This later terminology, borrowed from Lloyd Gerson, is clarified by Stang to avoid the impression that the divine self is an achievement realized through willful endeavor. In each case of the divine double's revelation, the experience is more a reception than an achievement. As Stang clarifies, quote, its arrival is more often occasioned by a release or letting go than by a grasping effort. Stang explores in detail how the divine double is received in very different contexts, Christian, Manichaean, and Platonic. And he gives such meticulous and nuanced attention to its expression that we may forget what an ambitious and even daring book this is. I would go so far as to suggest, using Stang's language, that his own divine double, his daimon, had a hand in it. To reveal the underlying telos of these religious traditions is the work of no mere scholar adding and subtracting the evidence of testimonies, placing yet another brick in the edifice of scholarly information. Our divine double is a daimonic vision, channeled through a scholar trained to receive it. But perhaps we are not allowed to speak these mysteries out loud. Consider it then a whisper. A daimon wrote this book. <laughs> but how did they do it, Stang and his daimon? What is the conceptual frame that allows the trajectory of the divine double to come into focus? What incantation did they use to make it appear? The key, I believe, to reveal this trajectory is platonic metaphysics specifically the metaphysics explored in Plato's Parmenides. This dialogue, Stang writes, exemplifies in a different register at a different altitude the profound paradox of identity and difference we see expressed in the existential experiences of the divine double. The Parmenides explores the root principle of Platonism, the one, and determines that the one both is and is not. This paradox of the one is the fundamental principle underlying all Platonic and Neoplatonic metaphysics. It is the glyph that reveals at once the mysteries of immanence and transcendence, mysteries that can be understood only through the phenomenology of the divine double, the experience of oneself as simultaneously I and not I, as myself and angelic other. 
The tradition of the divine double, as Stang puts it, is a, quote, long meditation on the paradox of the one that is and is not. And according to this tradition, it is our telos to realize this paradox fully. It is the deification of the human being. Anyone interested in understanding the later Neoplatonists or the Platonists in general, as I am, needs to read this book to reimagine the existential questions of Plotinus, Iamblichus, and Proclus, and to understand in a new and illuminating way what shaped their answers. The same is true, perhaps in an even more striking sense, for those interested in the origins of Christianity. How is it that this experience of unity in duality, being both I and not I, reflects not only the paradox of, of the Platonic One, but the paradox of the Christian divinity as well. Reading through the lens of the divine double, the enigmas of the Gospel of Thomas take on new meaning, as when Jesus says, when you come to dwell in the light, what will you do? On the day when you were one, you became two. But when you become two, what will you do? Throughout the Gospel of Thomas, the reader is invited to experience division and the confluence of opposites as essential to the, divided, to the deified state, becoming male and female, inside and outside, above and below. It is not, Stang argues, an urge to slough off one's embodied self through self-denial and celibacy in order to achieve a prelapsarian and androgynous unity. It is a call, rather, to experience a radical transformation achieved only by becoming one and two. As Stang puts it, quote, to enter the kingdom is to bend the law of non-contradiction to its breaking point, to overcome contraries, and to realize unity in duality. It is, he argues, to enter the state of exifnes, the timeless moment that serves as the pivot in Plato's Parmenides between the one that is and the one that is not, somehow impossibly being both. And it is that impossibility that humans are called to realize. The celibate solution, the sloughing off of one's embodied self to identify entirely with the divine, is a tempting simplicity that for Stang misses the mystery into which the Gospel of Thomas invites us. It would abort our realization of the divine double. It is here, against the encratic reading of the Gospel of Thomas, that I would like to pose the first of my two questions. I begin with Plotinus, for he seems to deny the embodied self that Stang says is necessary to the divine double. Plotinus speaks of matter as evil, encourages us to fly from embodied life, and identifies with his undescended noose his own divine twin, while dismissing his embodied self as an inferior companion. <coughs> By contrast, Iamblichus insists more impossibly that we are fully human and fully divine, and that only in the full acceptance of our identity as embodied and mortal can we discover our divine self, thus heightening the tenuous union of our dividedness. Stang characterizes this condition by writing that the Iamblichian soul is, quote, homeward bound only because fully exiled. This strikes me as more expressive of the paradox of the divine double than the collapsing of self into the divine seen in Plotinus. My question then is, 
how we distinguish the sloughing and denial of self from the catharsis that leads to the experience of the divine double. What is the nature of that catharsis? How do, how do we distinguish it from sheer self-denial? And how do we embody it? In this regard, I look forward to seeing how Stang might explore sacramental solutions to these questions, for it seems that there our bi-unity might be ritually and communally enacted. My second question has to do with the divine double as portrayed in the Gospel of Thomas and focuses on the person of Jesus. It's quite clear from Stang's reading that the sloughing of the self is not the goal for the reader of this gospel, with dividedness standing for sinful separation and oneness for divine unity. As Stang writes, quote, the reader is invited to realize that Jesus, the transcendent light, is his innermost self. Thus rendered two, he must now make those two one. He and his divine double must make peace in a single house. This gospel, Stang says, is our most profound Christian witness to the divine double. The reader realizes that as Jesus' twin, she both is and is not Jesus. But what of Jesus himself? What of his dividedness? The Thomas Christians seem to portray Jesus as undivided and that readers enter their twinned divinity by realizing their biunity with Jesus as divine principle. There seems to be a different valence of divine doubling here. For by personifying the divine principle as Jesus, his own divine double has been collapsed into an apparently undivided unity. A kind of iconic hegemony has occurred in which Jesus <coughs> becomes the dominating figure, as if a part had swallowed up the platonic whole, as if in Stang's terms, the horizontal double of the historical Jesus has in some sense displaced the vertical principle of divinity. Perhaps this question of Jesus' doubling gave rise to the Christological debates in the later tradition about which Stang has written, and I'm interested to know how these debates continued or possibly buried the trajectory of the divine double. To conclude, for me, there's something wild, infectious, and even a little mad in this wonderful book. Stang and his daimon embrace cognitive and existential impossibilities under the rubric of our divine double. And yet through his careful and cadenced presentation of this paradox, Stang tames the madness <coughs> and leads his readers in. He offers us a taste of our own by unity. He allows us to feel the touch of Plato's heaven-sent madness. To read our divine double is to become, in the words of, of the Gospel of Thomas, quote, intoxicated from the bubbling spring that Stang and his daimon have poured out. Thanks to our two discussants, uh, Ben and Greg, for wonderful ways of opening up the book and so many interesting questions raised. And Charlie gets now a chance to um, speak to his respondents. So I hadn't, thank you both for those remarkable comments. Um, really, in a very different key, you, you spoke in two very different keys, but posed some challenging questions. Um, I hadn't si seen either set of comments prior to this, so I'm, I'm shooting from the hip, as we say. And I'm not going to try to speak to all their, their comments um, and questions. I'm just going to 
respond to a few and then invite them up to the front and we can have a conversation for the time that remains. Um, let me start with Ben's second question about care of the self over against or in relation to self-knowledge. It's not a question I can easily answer, but I'm going to take up the last part of it, which was your invitation to think about what practices are being envisioned for um, either the care of the self or uh, self-knowledge. And uh, the book ends with a short confession on the importance of the practices of reading and writing. Over the course of researching and writing the book, it's clear that many of the ancient sources I was trying to wrestle to the ground imagined that they weren't just giving a description of this figure, the divine double, but they understood themselves as an instrument for surfacing the divine double. Another way to put that is that they understood themselves, uh, they were asking or inviting readers to encounter the divine double precisely through reading these texts. That cuts across the Christian, the Platonic, and even the Manichaean material. I didn't experience my divine double <laughs> reading and writing this book, but it gave me pause that all of the sources expected that I might do so. Right, to be a sort of aware, a self-aware scholar, you can't just pass over that fact of the text you are interpreting. And so the book ends with a, um, a kind of plea for a reimagined, um, a reimagining of the, these practices of reading and writing that we now take as almost entirely quotidian, um, especially as scholars, we just do it all the time. And I want to, and I, others have done this, but now I realize I need to do it. I need to recapture the immensity and and awe that these practices actually. Um, surrounded these practices in antiquity, that these are techniques and technologies that I think I have underappreciated. Although practices of writing have been at the margins of these two books. But Ben's asked me to think about other projects, uh, other practices rather, theurgy and sacramental action. One way to answer that is to say, I actually want to think about reading and writing as theurgic practices. And I have to say, if, whenever I mention the term theurgy, I mean, everything I know about theurgy, I have learned from Greg Shaw <laughs> sitting in front of me. Um, just as I have learned everything I know about Yambiclus, I have learned from Greg. So in Greg, your first question that you want to think about, you want me to think about Yambiclus and, and that idea of the coincidence of exile and homebound. I mean, I, I pulled that right out of your writing. Um, I never wrote anything that good. No, no, no. <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you did. For those, those of you who have not been uh, initiated into Yambiclus, and I imagine that's most of you in this room, uh, uh, he, he's, an amazing, he's an amazing figure from antiquity that has long <laughs> stood in the shadow of Plotinus, um, and Greg's done a lot to bring him out of that shadow. Um, I have to confess that this question, so let me just say, Ben, I'm not answering your second question because I, I don't know how. 
Nor do I know how to answer your third question, which is about, which is about re rethinking bodily and sexual difference alongside the one and the two, the problem of the one and the two. Fantastic question. I think in some sense I punted it in this book because I was so concerned to push back against what I took to be a dull and blunt characterization of sexual difference that I simply never took it up again in a sophisticated manner. And just like I was, like, if anyone's going to help me do that, it's going to be you. Um, and um, I don't feel equipped to do it right now, but I, I acknowledge the importance of that question because as the book stands, it sort of dispenses with sexual and bodily difference as an important um, dimension. But I'm really just dismissing a not very sophisticated version of that. Let me just respond, say one last thing, and then I will, we'll, we'll pause it. Uh, I had never, Greg, thought about the fact that the Gospel of Thomas exiles Jesus's own doubledness because he serves as that singular light principle that underwrites everyone else's <laughs> doubled subjectivity. Um, I never thought of it that way. So that's a revelation um, from my daimon. Uh, no, from you. Um, but uh, so in some sense, I, I, so my immediate reaction is, I guess that betrays a, something, I mean, my, I guess my immediate reaction is the Gospel of Thomas wants to sort of rescue Jesus from the condition that it's actually trying to bring about in the rest of us that doubledness, but that that's a liability. In some sense, that's a failure, if I heard you correctly. And that that is an interesting wormhole to the Christological controversies where the incarnate Christ is painstakingly parsed in terms of the one and the two. Um, I just opened a CD drive with my knee, pardon me. Um, <laughs> Uh, parsed uh, in terms of one and the two in the Christological <laughs> controversies of, of conciliar orthodoxy in the fifth century. Um, so when I loved, Ben, that you dug into a footnote and brought up that, um, that fact about the Christological controversies and that I, I put it in a footnote um, intentionally because there are two projects that kind of bubble out of this book and I was advised, I think very wisely, don't, 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 don't tell people you have two more projects in this book. Just put it in a footnote. Um, so, but that's, I, I tried to make a kind of pledge to take up this question of where does the divine double resurface in Christian orthodoxy? And to do that, in answer to your question, would require spending a lot of time with the fragmentary <laughs> evidence that emerges from Antioch and also the... Um, uh, and the Antiochian and more broadly East Syrian tradition that survives in Syriac. So this would be to chart a different Christological tradition than we usually uh, attend to. Uh, this is a tradition that, as I said, emerged in Antioch, was repudiated in, in uh, Council of Ephesus in 431, and but went on to actually have a very robust life in the Christian East as far as China. So. That's my homework.
So maybe with that, I will conclude my remarks, and we can um, we can take questions and comments to all three of us. No, I'll take this. Well, come on, you, you can throw that. So at this point, as you know from previous events, the floor is open, really. Uh, questions either simply from Charles, but also you can certainly interact with the two discussants as well. And it's informal, and you get to talk to each other as well. So would you like to open it, and Charlie, you can just recognize it. Yes, great. Thank you. So it's, it seems to me that a different form of the divine double tradition not only survives, but is actually quite prominent in Christian orthodoxy, which would be the guardian angel tradition, especially as it's systematized by more platonic thinkers. Um, and I wonder if you might say something about that, especially because if that is the case, it means to the extent that the tradition has been suppressed, it's not so much by conciliar orthodoxy as it is by modern scholars who have particular blind spots with respect to particular Christian traditions of Christian piety that make us uncomfortable. Um, so that it's not the kind of thing that we write scholarly monographs about, this, you know, sophisticated, systematic understandings of guardian angels and what that means for anthropology. Did you say something That's a great question. I, so uh, a, a friend and colleague by the name of Ellen Newberger wrote a book you probably know called Angels in Late Antiquity, and she tries to sort of get at the, some of the, the, the roots of the, the, the later developed guardian angel tradition. Um, so you'll find some reference to that in my footnotes, but you're quite right, I don't, I, I don't mention it as, a, as an afterlife of the divine double tradition. The one reason I didn't include it as, as a chapter, as a sort of afterlife chapter, though this may be mistaken, is that I'm not sure that the guardian angel tradition regards the guardian angel as actually part of the subjectivity <coughs> of a part of the Christian subject. So it seems, now I, I'm happy to be proven wrong there, but that's where I sort of felt like I could peel it off from this. If we could show that the guardian angel tradition was actually thinking about sort of including the angel as part of the, sing, of the sort of what I call the bi-unity subjectivity of the Christian subject, then I think it would be um, another transformation of the tradition. Um, so hopefully this isn't too out of left field, but I wanted to take up your suggestion at the, uh, or your sort of repetition of Feuerbach's um, claim that the essence of religion is in a kind of uh, self-doubling, because it seems like the um, in 19th and 20th century thought, the um, self-alienation of religion is precisely that which is most wrong with it. And I, I take that to be kind of the essence of some of the big, um, like Marx, Nietzsche, Freud critiques of religion, and then existentialists as well, who are concerned that the double or the, the um, alienation is precisely what's most problematic about religion. Um, and so I think that I'm wanting, uh, or I'm curious about whether you think that in some ways you, this is sort of a rebuke to that tradition, mm. that it's actually, this is, that, that someone like Feuerbach is maybe right in realizing that religion involves a kind of 
doubling, but that that isn't the doubling of alienation. It's actually what's most valuable about religion. Well, I guess it's a great question. I would say that if we think about self-alienation, not with the pejorative sense that that has, but just think of the ways in which the self others from itself. And I'd say there's, that can happen on a variety of axes. And the, the book opens with, by acknowledging that 19th and 20th century interest in figures of the devil is along one axis, which is the doppelganger. Right? That's, a, that's a, a menacing horizontal double. So I suppose what I would say is, are there different axes of self-alienation? And maybe this self-alienation on what I'm calling bluntly like the vertical axis might be an answer to the, the critiques of religion as involved in another kind of self-alienation. But that's really provisional. And by the way, Greg, Ben, feel free to jump in on any of these. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just wondering, given that you've written this really compelling invitation to think about uh, the divine double that isn't just in the ancient world, but, but by implication yeah. could be embraced even today, that's an outrageous <laughs> kind of concept to entertain yeah. uh, in our contemporary culture. Um, and it's difficult to even think how you could contain it. But I think that you invite people to at least consider it through, through this book. Yeah. Greg, there's perhaps another Harvard scholar who attempted to do this in uh, another way, uh, that being uh, Richard Alpert. Uh, you mentioned exciteness as the timeless moment. And Richard Alpert referred to this in his book, Be Here Now. Any comment? I don't know that book. Of course, I know of it. Very new. Yeah, it was one of the Bibles I read in my hippie days. <laughs> sure. Um, and uh, that's it. It is that timeless moment, exifnes. And uh, possibly, in our contemporary culture, some people who took uh, psychedelic uh, drugs had experiences which they groped for a language to explain what was happening. If they had Charlie's book, they would have had more terms to use to what was happening. And I'm deadly serious. They would have. They would have said, we're in this tradition, this Western tradition of divine double. You don't have to, you know, think that you're Jehovah Almighty. You can chill out and still have dinner, you know, and, and, and realize that this is, this is something that people have experienced. But um, I don't think, we didn't have Charlie's book then. And I think we've come a long way since Richard Alpert was uh, dropping acid. But I, th I think he did a great job given what he had. Exiphanes is a perfect term to describe the moment that's timeless. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I wish I had a picture. Oh, of that, was yeah. <laughs> that was classic. That was a great book. It's a great book. Did you want to? Yeah. I, so I was really intrigued by the different ways that Exifnes kept yeah. coming up through the book too. And Maybe we should say what Exifnes means. It means suddenly or the sudden in Greek. Sorry. Okay. Right. And sort of a question about what kind of temporality is this? And yeah. Is it even a temporality? Um, 
And I want to draw a connection, which you didn't make, but it, it seemed to it connected in my head when I was reading the book. And I've asked you about this before, but I thought you guys were going to talk about Plotinus, and you didn't. Um, so we can. I want to. Um, I don't know anything about Plotinus, but I'm. I just keep coming back to the very last paragraph of the Plotinus chapter, where you're trying to find language to think about the, the final mystical union of the self and the one. Yeah. Um, and this is, of course, a task where language ultimately fails and where, to some degree, thought probably fails, yeah. right? Um, and, so, um, and so you're resorting to figural language, which makes, I mean, what else would you do, right? Um, but I was just really struck by the images at the end of that, in that final paragraph, where you're trying to talk about a kind of final union with the one that is still somehow maintaining mm -hmm. some sort of non-coincidence. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the language is all metaphors of space, right? It's a hairline crack, a gap so thin, the crack of this differentiating knot. Um, and then when you're talking about the... Um, you finish out the sentence sort of glossing what that means, you slip into temporal language. So the, the, the fissure, the hairline crack uh, becomes a specter or a distant memory, right? So there's some kind of interplay there with the, with the spatial and the temporal around this kind of failure of language, right? This thing we're trying to think that we can't think um, you didn't connect that to the, the exophanes, but insofar as there's that moment earlier in Plato yeah. where he talks about, he calls it like a queer creature. Yes, he right? does. Yeah. Queer thing. Um, so I don't know. There's no question here. It's just kind of a well, complex I mean, of things I'm really interested in. That's a great. I, I think in some ways uh, I hadn't noticed the shift from temporal to, uh, I'm sorry, from spatial to temporal, but in some sense then. The struggles of this last paragraph are a performance right. of exactly. what's going on, what, what Plato was saying about acceptance. Um, any other uh, comments or questions? Yes, sir. Uh, when you were writing the book, did it occur to you that the, in our time, the conscience or gewissen or synodesis or the satilla is sort of a remnant of the concept of the divine double? So not while I was writing the book. But since I've written the book, I've been, honestly, at this point, I'm just musing. I've thought to myself, what? Okay, so the daimon, you know, Plato didn't invent the language of the daimon. Socrates <coughs> didn't invent the language of the daimon. He appropriated what was a, a concept of his day and bent it, to, bent it to give voice to this experience he had. So I've been musing. Well, what, what are the concepts of the day that we would bend to give voice to this experience if it were to, if one were to have this experience? Where would we see this, uh, where would we see the divine double find expression um, in, a, in the contemporary world? I, I'm, not, I'm not committed to say that it is, although since having written this, I get People talk to me um, <laughs> about some things that, that they've experienced. 
And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm, a, I'm trying to listen to, uh, and, and listen to what people say and also just muse about how would this thing manifest? Um, because every one of the case studies is culturally specific and determined. So it's not as if any one of them, if, it were, if the Divine de Beauvoir were to be making an appearance today, it would be similarly conditioned. What is its condition today? Does that answer you? I mean, does that speak to your question? I, I would suggest that the, the conscience is probably the closest thing that is alive today to, yeah. the, to it. Thank you. So if I could just throw in a comment there, I'm thinking in, in terms of our context, I wonder if one could think in some ways of the great kind of exploration of interreligious similarities and differences as a kind of discovery process of others hitherto unknown in other religions, other traditions that suddenly come to the fore and are kind of these illuminating kindred spirits. So that mm -hmm. the kind of work I do and others in the room do, comparative can be thought of is it all the same? Is it all different? But this idea of the doubling or twinning could be a very productive way of thinking about what happens when a Christian finds something Buddhist or a Christian <coughs> finds something Jewish, whatever, might open up possibilities of the kind you were just asking. Yeah, about. I think that's right. And this, this was like baby comparison um, in some sense because it's all kind of historically and geographically contiguous. Um, and I know there's some bona fide comparativists in the room. In fact, I'm going to call on one right now. Axel? Sure. Um, I have a couple of questions. Uh, so the first one relates to what Professor Dunning mentioned, is that whenever he would encounter you at a conference or whatnot, and, and you told him about the project, it never occurred to him that you could do more with that. And indeed, you do. And you collect, connect a lot of dots. And, admit, and you admit uh, very explicitly that these aren't necessarily historical or ge genealogical dots, but they are sort of philosophical dots that connect in terms of thought. Uh, so my first very, perhaps a more straightforward question is, uh, which author, which uh, textual tradition do you have the most trouble connecting the dots to the broader Divine Double project as you read the text? And you thought, maybe you thought, yourself, oh, am I, am I reading too much into this, or is there an actual connection? Yeah. Um, so that'll be one question. Quickly, the second question related to what Professor Shaw has been mentioning is that the, the prescriptive edge of your writing sort of invites the reader in. And I actually found this in your first book as well, that the prescriptive sort of edge of your writing, leaving the reader sort of to take that final step to sort of give a prescriptive proposal. And in that sense, both your books sort of live in the borderlands between history of religions and actually proposing a theology for the present day. So I also would it would be great to hear sort of the, that method of writing and, and why you choose to sort of stop and now like, the reader's doing it. Um, if that's, if that's a self-conscious uh, thing you do. <coughs> um, okay. First of all, let me take the, the easier one. With the, I, yeah. Who is hard to bend to the arc of this narrative? <laughs> what was the recalcitrant data? Um, There was no, none of the, the points, so to speak, did I ever feel like mm, they don't really fit in this tradition. Maybe a little bit Tatian. A little bit Tatian. But he was kind of minor, so uh, not, not, not a major figure. There was, the Acts of Thomas was obviously in the tradition, but also not clear if it was kind of like, Ben's reaction to it was like, 
well, the acts of Thomas are just not that awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was his reaction a few months ago. And I, I, I completely recognize what he's saying. You know, I tried to, tried to make it awesome. Um, but I, the, the, hard, the, the two things that were hardest to bend were the Gospel of Thomas, not because I was convinced that it wasn't a data point, but I, it was very hard for me to articulate my reading of the Gospel of Thomas in a way that didn't also feel deeply esoteric itself. Uh, and I, so I, I worked hard to make that intelligible. And then Plotinus, because the problem that I'm, I mean, the divine double in Plotinus, it runs the whole gamut. Like, it's, it's kind of like the structuring principle of Plotinus. So to try to wrestle the entirety of Plotinus down and figure out how to say it, man, I, that, that chapter really, I think I will die, you know, earlier in life. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll earn extra life for it. But it did something to me, writing that chapter. Um, Okay, this other question about restraint. I feel like this is, you, okay, Facebook today, this is hilarious. Facebook kicked up a memory for me. You know how Facebook does this? Guess what memory it kicked up for me today? That I had a book event four years ago at the CSWR. <laughs> Literally, I just opened Facebook and I was like, four years ago this happened, and I'm like, that's happening tonight. Uh, and it, like, eternal return of the same, the issue was, why, what, what's up with your restraint in writing? And I can't claim that it's a deliberate strategy because I don't think I have that kind of distance on it, that it's deliberated. I think it's, I think it's probably partly my psychology and partly because as I was trying to stumble in, the, in my opening comments, I feel like I don't really know how to say what I sense in the, in the material. So every time I, I mean, with both these books, I felt like when I read them, I feel like there's something, there's some kind of gravitational pull of a, of a void. And I don't know whether that's something I should just make peace with and say, maybe this is just how I write, but at the end of it, there's a, there's a hole that bring that, that draws, as you said, draws somebody into their own, has, draws a reaction out of their own reading, or whether this is fundamentally a kind of lack of resolve or, 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 or courage to say something that I won't or can't say. And I am like right on the precipice of that. I don't know. I don't know which one it is. Does that make sense? I, I have to say that when I started to read this manuscript, and that's how I got it first, was a manuscript, I thought, oh my God, this guy is trying to pull off this. This is huge. And I thought, who the hell could ever pull this off? And I thought, he's doing a damn good job. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you, you know, really, that's what I thought. I thought, this is a huge thing to do, to try to do all this stuff. And so it's gigantic. It's, you'd say, who could possibly? And I knew who Charlie was, and well, okay, man. You know, I, I just had to, I, I had to tip my hat to, to him, being able to pull it off. And I think part of it that works for me is that he's aware of how difficult it is 
to pull it off, and yet he's totally loyal to the vision that he's following, that he wants to pull it off, and that's why I, I sense his daimon, that he just keeps you know, staying loyal to that, but he also realizes how difficult it is, and so he'll try to explain it to himself, how it might this, might that, and, and address all these concerns that we have, but it makes you trust his voice, because he's, he's not just laying it out like some revelation, but rather nuanced with reflection, hesitation, restraint. But there's a big vision going on here. I mean, it's, it's ambitious. This is hugely ambitious, I think. And more power to him for, for writing an ambitious book. I think that's what you want, to ride that horse. Or to let that horse ride you. I don't know how it works. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I, but I, I'm trying to pick up on what you're saying about the writing style. And you pick up both sides of this, the restraint and the, the yeah. The ambition. I guess I'll just say about the restraint. Um, I see it. I also appreciate it in a way. And I mean, and if we're thinking about reading and <coughs> writing as spiritual practices um, and practices of self formation and self-undoing and self-reformation. Um, you know, my other hat I wear is a lot of sort of gender and queer theory, and for folks who've read in any of that, there's this amazing but incredibly obnoxious moment in, uh, in Lacan where, uh, where he says, you know, if you want to delve deeper into these mystical experiences, you know, read this mystic and that mystic and this other mystic, oh, and read my book too. Um, and I really appreciate that you don't position. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, if thinking about that kind of constructive project, like it's impossible to read this book without sensing what people have been calling the prescriptive edge. But I love the way in which it's such an invitation into one's own um, spiritual work um, uh, through reading, and then you have that very evocative invitation to writing at the end, too. Um, and I think while, while recognizing that there's certainly more that you could say, it might be possible to say too much in a way that would sort of shut down that space of possibility and engagement um, that I just find just very powerful in this book. Thank you. Great. Yeah, uh, I wanted to come back to Professor Shaw's observation that you then also play with a little bit on uh, the alienation of Jesus's or exile, I think as you put it, of Jesus's divine double in the Gospel of Thomas. And also come back to something that Professor Dunning mentioned that you also picked up on and thinking about writing practices and particularly antiquity, <coughs> obviously relating back to your first book. Um, and I guess I don't exactly know how to ask this question, but if if we're going to think about the the Jesus's divine double being exiled in some sense in the Gospel of Thomas, how then does that bend back around to an interpretation of the prologue um, and the issuance of this text from an encounter between Jesus, the living Jesus, speaking these secret sayings, and Didymus Judas Thomas, the twin, writing them down? Uh, and is there something then going on in, in the issuance of this text in between an of an encounter between Jesus and a twin? Mm. Um, yeah. <coughs> I guess one way would uh, would be to rethink whether 
Thomas is the twin because he has Jesus in him, or whether that opening prologue is, is actually just, like maybe that's actually just Jesus and Thomas as one. Well, I think, I think where, I'm, where I'm going with this is just thinking about like some of Professor King's work recently on uh, author function in antiquity and the ways in which uh, authoring of texts is distributed in, in ways that are different than how we think about authoring texts in modernity, drawing off Foucault and others. Um, and there's a real way within, within this text where the, the, uh, the authorization of these words is actually distributed. Mm -hmm. In fact, that it's, they're issued from the living Jesus, but transmitted by uh, the twin and inscribed by the twin into this form that we have them. Um, so, and then of course there's a whole other layer on this given your other thought about pseudepigraphy. Uh, yeah. And if you if you if you assume that this text is not actually written by someone named Didymus Thomas, who's actually talking to the living Jesus, what does that mean about a writing practice for this particular? Yeah, text? no, this is great. Uh, yeah, I, 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 can I just be in awe of the question? Uh, no, it's really. I I, I feel like uh, you've said better things about both of my books than I have. Uh, that's uh, definitely not true. <laughs> okay. But that's a, that's a great question, which I'm just going to have to sit with. Other comments, questions? Or what, how are we on time, Frank? We have about five minutes. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, Greg, uh, you had uh, started to comment and to frame my question properly, uh, referencing what you call the horizontal Jesus, and there was a second portion to that. Could you restate that? Oh, yeah. Um, well, what struck me was that <coughs> Jesus himself seemed to be taken out of the equation of having a divine double, that, that he had no divine double, so that it's as if the historical Jesus was considered to be the full divine, so there wasn't this two and one, but he's just all one. And um, so that's why I said it seemed like there's a different valence uh, of, of playing the divine double out when you consider Jesus, and that was interesting. <coughs> And what struck me when I first read the manuscript was, um, this may seem inappropriate, but um, the, the second Matrix movie where Agent Smith uh, takes over everybody's body by touching them, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I thought, that's, that's, not, that's not what we're looking for here. You know, uh, the Divine Double is this sort of transcendent vertical, and it seemed as if, mm -hmm. anyway, so well, you, you were going to say something. Yeah, uh, thank you. That, that does uh, support uh, my question. So uh, the project has been described uh, in one way uh, with the question, where does the divine double resurface in Christianity? And for those of you who like to take on projects, there is uh, research uh, that uh, Jesus resurfaced in India. Uh, you may or may not be aware of that, but um, would, uh, would pursuing the clarification of that or the exploration of that um, uh, lead to a, a, a greater understanding of the divine double? So I do study ancient Christianity as it pops up in India, but I've, I don't know of anything that speaks of Jesus himself in re-emerging in India, so you'd have to share that archive with me. I'd have to know those texts. Um, 
when I talk about the res the way this resurfaces in Christianity, I'm more, I'm, I guess what I'm really saying is, I, I kind of think that this is a this is a this is a an iterable structure, like a repeatable version uh, of the self. Where do we get this once? conciliar orthodoxy makes this version of it impossible or you even ask why is it why does it continue to be attractive why does it bubble up in other forms um, and I just had floated two at the end of this book namely the problem of evil where evil and evil and God become like doubles and then the ob more obvious one which is the incarnate Christ where it's this very developed discourse but 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 the guardian angel could be another and I'm open to others but I would need to I need to you know I'm still nerdy I need to see the sources so um, maybe we should just to add a footnote to that yes, I mean in terms of um, appearances of Jesus in 19th 20th century India certainly some of the gurus and swamis begin to evoke that spirit of Jesus and see it work I don't know about ancient sources but Somebody like Yogananda in the 20th century communing with Jesus as he writes his interpretation of the gospel. And then very famously, uh, Ramakrishna in the uh, 1880s or so <coughs> meditates on the Madonna, has the gospel read to him, and then walking in the garden, this man comes to him and he, and he says, the, the son of the divine father and the son of the divine mother merge and they become one. And that for his disciples, Vivekananda and something like that, is the sense that you see Ramakrishna, you see Christ, you see back and forth. But that's 19th century, it's not always. Yeah, but it's a good example. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for coming.